You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another episode of the Western Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and I'm super excited because today's guest has, from what I can tell, done almost all of it there is to do in the outdoors. He's a writer, editor, and producer over at Eastman's Hunting Journal, as well as Beyond the Grid TV. Uh, Dan Picar. I hope I didn't mispronounce your last name, but how are you doing today, Dan? I'm doing good. No, you nailed it. It's funny growing up, uh, you know, through school and college. You should hear the pronunciations of my last name. You can imagine Dan Picker, Picker. Yeah. Like, no, there's there's no pickers here. There's Picars here. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> but yeah. Nah, no, doing good. Cool. Cool. So from what I can tell, um, by looking up at your social media, you have already racked up probably more experiences and adventures than us average sportsmen and women will probably do in a lifetime. Is there anything left on the on the dream list, or are you just circling <laughs> back for seconds and thirds at this point? Well, I'm, I'm the type of guy that I like to chase adventures that are economically friendly to my wallet. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's kind of how it all started you know, out of college and, and being a hunting guide and then uh, just wanting to become a better hunter and wanting to become a better bow hunter. And so I seeked out uh, just adventures that I could do that didn't cost me a ton of money. And, you know, like I started in, in Hawaii uh, going there over a decade ago, bow hunting. And I started over there by going over there and bumming it and sleeping out of the car, uh, you know, a rental car and, you know, making contacts. And now over the years, you know, going over, over there. Uh, yeah. I think that's my 13th trip I did this year was number 13, but making great connections and meeting great people. And, and it's kind of evolved in, into a lifestyle of hunting Hawaii every year and, and some of the great properties that I go back to. So I'm not bumming it anymore. I, I have a family now too, and some great connections. And so it's really evolved into um, yeah, just an awesome lifestyle and just something that I do every year. It's just kind of who I am now. Um, so that, yeah, that's kind of just a little snippet. Um, but it all started, uh, you know, probably in 2008 when I really uh, just wanted to become a better bow hunter and gain experience. And, 
and just keep trying to get better and better. And, you know, there, there's so many, that's the cool thing with bow hunting is there's so many benefits to it that more than just, you know, the hunt or, you know, flinging an arrow, um, you know, the connections that you make and the relationships and the lifestyle and the adventure and the journey and just everything that it encompasses just has really attracted me uh, since the beginning. And that's probably why I love it so much is just the big picture of it. Yeah. And it, um, it, there's so much you can do with bow hunting, especially like the access for tags and hunts. And it, you know, it's just so much easier to come by than rifle. Um, unless you're in Colorado doing like over the counter rifle and it's, you know, a majority of bow hunters in America are whitetail bow hunters, right? I mean, the hunting industry really is the Mississippi and Missouri river valleys for whitetail hunters. And you don't, like you said, you, you don't meet a ton of people when you're just going to your own farm and sitting in your tree stand. But when you start traveling for bow hunting, especially like out West, you're meeting people in all these little towns, you're, you're stopping for gas and you got, if you got antlers hanging out of your truck, people are walking up and asking you about the hunt and where you were and where you're from. And, and you just slowly start meeting people on every trip. Like, I don't know if I've ever gone on a, on a Western hunt where I didn't make a contact that I like could talk to now. Like I could reach out, give them a call, give them a text, see what's up, how their fall is going. And you, like you, once you start expanding past the like bow stand whitetails, it really opens up the landscape of what's potentially an option for you. Exactly. It, it, it just snowballs your connection like that. And the more you do it, the more it snowballs. And before you know it, the more hunts are going on and maybe you host a couple guys that come out, you have something to offer back. And, and that's probably some of the best hunts I've been on and the best experiences were basically like they're hunt trades, but they're not really because we're buddies, but it's like, okay, I'll take you hunting and I'm going to take you to some of my good spots. And then, you know, I want to experience, you know, it reciprocated and go hunting with you. Maybe, you know, it's Arizona or who knows where it is, Alaska and experience something new for me. And that's the beauty of it right there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, there's a lot of things you can do. Um, and I noticed you, it doesn't seem like you have any type of, uh, discriminatory preferences when it comes to outdoors activities. I've seen you, you're doing the big game, you're doing sheep and tar and axis deer, some of these nuanced species. I've seen lots of fish, um, seen some waterfall. It, are you, would you say you're a big game hunter that takes advantage of opportunities or are you just a equal opportunity hunter? Yeah, I'm definitely an equal opportunity hunter. Um, it, and it's just because of the way I was raised. My dad got, uh, myself, and my brother out in the outdoors early and hunting and mostly rifle, you know, hunting as kids. And my dad wasn't a big archer. He wasn't a big bow hunter. Uh, he, you know, he would sit the tree stand in Montana where I grew up maybe a, a couple nights of bow season and, and hope for a whitetail or something to come by. But, uh, yeah, bow hunting for me came in my teenage years and I kind of picked it up myself. But as a kid, you know, I love the squirrel hunting with 22s and, and I was a competitive shooter. My dad taught me how to, how to shoot and we took it very seriously. And, and, uh, a big part of my upbringing was gopher hunting and prairie dog hunting. That's how you're developing that aim small, miss small mentality and, you know, still shooting, moving targets and animal just it's it's so much different than shooting a target as you know and 
you know, those are the building blocks to becoming, you know, a, a great shot in hunting situations. And so that's what my dad kind of really taught us to do at a very young age, probably like when we were six, we started. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's early. I mean, I was trying to plink uh, squirrels off of my mom's bird feeder at an early age, but all yeah. I had was the Pelagon cause we kind of lived on a lake and there's neighbors and they didn't really want me running around with the 22. Um, so I'm trying to knock these squirrels down with the Pelagon and the Pelagon wasn't accurate at all. And it, you know, but eventually you get one, you know, like the kids, like when you're that young, like you could do it for hours, right? You could just sit yeah. there all day long, set up on that bird feeder, waiting for your squirrel to come by and, and uh, yeah, eventually you knock one down and that feeling like I did this on my own. Like I did this. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was lucky enough to grow up in the country and kind of the same mentality. And my dad, as a kid, he'd be like, okay, no squirrel hunting by the house. I like the squirrels around. I was like, really? I'm like eight or nine or 10. And so he would go to town or whatever in the summer I'd be home and I would go squirrel hunting. I'd shoot him by the house. And I don't know if my dad thought I was like a little angel or something because he actually asked the biologist at Montana FWP, if there was like a, a tree squirrel shortage or if there was a disease going through or anything like that, because there was no squirrels <laughs> left on our property. <laughs> okay. It sounds like he actually did like the squirrels. If you ask that, I was thinking more so he was telling you he liked the squirrels, but what he really wanted was you not to shoot the windows or the house. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I did that too. I was kind of a bad kid and no, I wasn't a bad kid. I was just very adventurous. <laughs> when you have that much freedom at that age, you're going to, you're going to find the line multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so you, you transitioned to bow hunting in the teens. That's what I did. I don't know if it's like a product of like you get into hunting and then you get into it so much. You're like, I want more. And that's like the, that's the easiest option to get more hunting. Or if it's like a little like rebel, like, well, my dad rifle hunts, but I want to do something different. So I'm going to bow hunt. Um, but it, it seems like that's pretty common for the teenager to pick up the bow and start chasing deer, whatever, squirrels. I shot a goose, a banded goose with my bow when I was a kid. So. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's very similar. Um, I actually, I got more into waterfowl hunting first, and my dad was not a waterfowler growing up. Um, but I got into waterfowl hunting in my high school years, in my early college years. I was pretty into uh, waterfowling. And for me, I mean, it, it turned into something that I, I really enjoyed and I just couldn't get enough of. And then it turned into, it's not as much about the challenge anymore. It's about like hunting with buddies. It's like a social type of hunting. And then I kind of took bow hunting more seriously from there. Just the desire to have a bigger challenge. And, and maybe it's just your classic American male of, you know, the, the next thing to conquer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did that. And now I want the next level. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I still love waterfowl hunting, but, um, I don't, I don't do it as much anymore. And, and here at Eastman's we have wingmen, which is our waterfowl sector. And I'm heavily involved in that, but, uh, I truly in, enjoy waterfowl hunting, but I definitely took the bow hunting to the next level because I just was looking for that challenge, that next level challenge. Yeah, my my problem with waterfall hunting is twofold. One, it's a, a completely different set of equipment that also is not cheap. <laughs> yep. And two, it happens right smack dab in the middle of elk season. And I would yep. rather chase elk with my bow than geese. And, um, and so, yeah, I would love to go, but it's just one of those things where I kind of made a choice. Like, I'm going to double down on the big game 
and then I'm going to, I mean, I maybe go sit waterfall if my brother's got something lined up or, you know, but I don't have any of my own gear other than a shotgun at that point. You know, that's the, that's the level of waterfaller I am. I'm, I'm the, I'll bring snacks and drinks kind of guy and cook up breakfast in the blind, but because <laughs> I don't have any gear or any knowledge or I haven't scouted any field. So I'll bring the food. Yep. Yep. No, exactly. It's a, it's a teamwork thing. It's a, yeah, you do it with your buddies and it's a social thing. And yeah, that's, that's why I love it. It's, and yeah, it's so expensive. I remember when uh, heavy shot came out when I was a kid and it was the next best thing. And I got a couple boxes and it was so expensive because I was so used to, you know, spending $10 on a box of, you know, steel, you know, 25 yeah. rounds of steel for yeah. 10 bucks. Uh, high, I can't remember what it was. Probably high speed like, steel. Yeah. Federal blue box or the Winchester. Shot. Yep. Yep. We shot some of that. We had, uh, the Remington stuff too, high speed or whatever yeah, it was, yeah, yep, but, yep. but yeah, the heavy shot that was like, Oh, we got to save up for heavy shot. It's $30 for 10 rounds. It's so crazy expensive. And yeah, that's like, it's just funny how, you know, life has and hunting in general has just changed so much over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's black cloud and doesn't get any cheaper, but it, I mean, it does yeah. work, but like, I've always been like, man, who I'm going to miss anyway. So why would I spend money on expensive <laughs> shells? <laughs> right. Exactly. And I still buy steel. I still buy, yeah. you know, Kent fast steel. That's what another one that I shot when I was a kid. I like my, my Kent fast steel. I, sh I shot back in the day because I'm so cheap too. And I'm, you know, miss half the time anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just want to make buddies with better collars and better set spread setters. So that way they're close and then I can save my money on my shells. Exactly. <laughs> So exactly. Yeah. So on, on the, on the big game front, uh, what has, if you had to pick your favorite experience or hunt so far that you've done, what is your, what's like the favorite, what's the favorite adventure that you've gone on? Yeah. Bigger adventure, the better. There's still a lot of things out there I haven't done, uh, that I want to do, but, uh, probably the greatest adventure that I've been on is, um, guy, my boss, he, uh, went Marco Polo sheep hunting in Tajikistan and I went with him oh boy. on that hunt to film it and talk about just remoteness in the other side of the world and uh, high, high altitude. I ended up with a terrible case of uh, high altitude pulmonary edema Ooh. and I'm at 16,400 feet like spitting up fluid, coughing up fluid out of my lungs, Yikes. wondering if I'm going to make it down. And the last thing I want to do is end up in a Tajiki hospital dying yeah. from altitude sickness. And so that was like, you know, at that point in my life, I'm sitting up there and just digging deeper and finding that next level of strength. And I really believe that, you know, building characters is a huge thing and, and suffering is a big part of that being uncomfortable and, and a little bit of suffering, uh, you build character. I think you become a better person and it gives you a different perspective on life. Like after that point of being up there, coughing up all that fluid, wondering if I was going to make it all of a sudden, you know, 99% of things in everyday life are not a big deal. It's nothing. But when you're in a foreign country wondering if you're going to live or die, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've said that a lot, you know, like stress, misery, um, 
comfort, it's all relative and it's not relative to anyone else but yourself. Like what have you done in the past? And like you said, like after you did that, that 16 plus, you'll probably never bat an eye at a 14 or again or a 12, mm-hmm. you know, like, Oh yeah, those elk are way up high. They're at 11,000 feet. And you're like, all right, let's go get them. Like that's baby food. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Pushing yourself to those extremes makes everything in the middle or just outside the middle, nothing. It's not a problem. Yeah, it's the same concept to why guys shoot 100 yards with their bow to make that 40-yard shot a chip shot. It's yep. you do you do something harder than, you know, practice harder than you're going to play and and then the the game won't even be that hard. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. How do exactly. you train for a how do you train for that hunt? You just Yeah, I mean, you can you know, around here in Wyoming, we have 11,000-foot peaks. That's probably the highest that we have. There might be couple that hit 12,000, but, uh, 10 to 11,000, you can, you know, hit the altitude and be cardiovascular wise in great shape. And I was, and, oh, yeah. and pulmonary like altitude sickness is weird because it can hit the most physically fit individuals and it can hit the most out of shape individuals. And at that time when we went, it was in November. So I just came off of hunting season, you know, September, October, where, I'm extremely active, extremely physical, hiking, hiking, hiking all, all fall. And out of that whole entire camp, I mean, there were, were guys that could barely walk from their vehicle to the house in normal life and altitude sickness didn't affect them. Really? Nope. Not, yeah. not one thing. It did not affect them. But what I kind of found out through research is with that altitude sickness, it, it really affects individuals that are, that are cardiovascular healthy uh and what i i took out of that is like if you're have a healthy cardiovascular system and your heart and lungs are in good shape and your body is really efficient at transporting oxygen throughout your body all of a sudden your your organs your vital organs and you know your stomach and Mm. kidneys and liver doesn't need as much oxygen to operate and so your body isn't produce or isn't like distributing this oxygen to all, all your organs at a rate as fast as somebody that's not cardiovascular wise in shape. Yeah. If that makes sense. And yeah. so then I go from, and, and that's a big thing like to acclimate. And when you get to elevation and, and like guys on Everest, like if you're, if you're hiking Mount Everest, you're not just going from 12,000 to 16,000 to 22,000 feet, like you're walking and you're so much uh, better off to walk and slowly ascend to those elevations. Whereas, you know, we drove and we went from uh, 8,500 to a, a town in Tajikistan called Horog. We, we drove to camp at 14.5. So we went from 8,000 to 14.5 by vehicle. And that's like a pretty big like punch, a shock to your system. And oh, altitude, yeah. yeah, it can really screw you up. Now, if I were to hike from 8,000 to 14,000 over the course of like two days, it, you, you probably wouldn't really. I mean, yeah, you're going to be short of breath and whatnot, but it's probably not going to affect you uh, like it did uh to me when I drove in a matter of four hours to yeah. 14,000 from 8,000, that's kind of a, a big shock to your system. Yeah, no, I hear you. Because even when you said like, yeah, I'll train to 11,000 on the peaks around here. Well, 11 to 16 is the same jump as like six to 11. And I, 
you, I, a lot of outdoorsmen, we don't even bat an eye at six. Like 6,000 is flat. Yeah. I mean, when you're thinking of doing like a mountain hunt, you're like, oh, man, nice. We found a spot, and guess what? It's only 6,000 feet. Like that's how you talk yeah. about it. And so to jump a 5,000, like that's a big deal. And so to even to train at 11, that's like drastically different than 16. Um, and, yeah, so that is weird. I, I have been – I've been on the highest hunts I've ever been on was a solo. I did a solo rifle hunt, elk hunt, second rifle in Colorado. And because I was the only one with points, and then I got a bunch of free points from Colorado Game and Fish. And so I thought I better use them before I, they find out they made a mistake. And so I cashed in. And that was, we camped at, or I camped at about 11.5, and I shot my elk at 12.5. Yep. And I noticed, I felt like. I felt like crap, but that's because I remembered, oh, yeah, I'm not eating anything. I haven't eaten a full meal in two days. I'm probably dehydrated. And so I was starting to feel kind of crappy from that. And then I went to town, got a hotel, stocked up on energy, went back out, and I was fine. But what I've noticed is I can't remember a single time, 12,005 is the highest. Usually we're at about 8 to 10 that I've ever really noticed, like, altitude sickness. Like, sure, I get winded faster going uphill with a pack on than I'm used to at home, but I've never felt like anything was wrong other than my lungs just got behind faster. Yeah. Versus my yeah. dad, he'll get, he'll get like, legit altitude sickness. So that's, like, kind of a big deal for him. He plans, when he goes out west, he kind of plans for that. Like, oh, we're going to take a day or two to acclimate before we really start hunting. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's it affects everybody differently. And, and like, if I went back to 16,000, it might affect me completely different on, on, you know, my next trip, you just, you can't really predict it. Yeah. And you can take meds, you know, to, you know, prevent that. Um, there's a, I can't remember what the pill is called that you can take that helps you acclimate to elevation and essentially you won't get really you know, alt altitude sickness. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but, but yeah, once, once you get over 9,000 feet is when like, that's the threshold is when it can like really start affecting you is that 9,000 is the magic number when oxygen just exponentially starts to decrease as you go up from there, like at a rapid rate and especially at higher than 12,000, just like down to yeah. very minimal. Yeah. Well, that's a big part of people but, that do like tall peaks, like Everest is they, they want to acclimate, but that once they hit that threshold or that elevation, now they're on like a specific clock. Like you need to come back down within, I don't remember what it is, but it's like 48 hours or else you will, your body will be under like the, the maintenance level of oxygen for too long and, and you won't make it. Like you, you only have so much time to go up and come back down. And a lot of people, they don't make it to the peak because they're halfway up and they're like we're not going to make it we're no we don't have time we don't have time to finish this if we keep going higher we're gonna get we're gonna run out of time and we're gonna stay on this mountain yep yeah. yep exactly Here, here's a trick for you uh last year i went on a colorado hunt and and this also actually saved me in tajikistan i'll get to this in a second but i i talked to my doctor and was like hey will you uh prescribe me some cialis <laughs> Yeah. And he's like, and I'm like for, for elevation, for altitude. And I, I text him that and he texts me back like 10 minutes later. And he's like, yeah, actually I found a lot of literature and peer reviewed studies of, of Cialis being used for altitude performance. And so what doctors are doing is they prescribe Cialis to athletes, like from, if you're in California and you go to Colorado and 
compete what it does is Cialis is like a slow release compared to like Viagra as a fast release. Uh, but Cialis is a slow release and it dilates your capillaries. And yeah. so your body, Moves everything more blood faster. Yeah. And it just, every, your body just works more efficiently and, and you can, your, your vital organs, all of your vital organs uh, just absorb oxygen, get more oxygen and absorb it more efficiently. And so like, it really is steroids for the mountain. Yeah, you just have to make sure you had you don't have any awkward trophy photos of like, are you you just excited because nope. you shot a bull or <laughs> what's going on here? Let's um, not pitch any extra tents. Yeah, that's <laughs> that would be like you know someone's doing it hardcore when you can look at their photos and be like, yeah, you must have been at a high elevation because we can tell. <laughs> or he's really excited. But that's no, that's that's what that saved cool me. Tip. It saved me in Tajikistan. Did you take them going in and still had problems, or did you have problems and you're like, all right, I'm going to take one, and then they kind of went away? I in reach. Actually, I sat phoned out to a doctor in Maryland. It was uh, the outfitter's doctor, and talked to him on the phone, and he's like, you, you have basically two options, and maybe a third. The first option is if you can take this steroid, and you can recover at elevation, which nobody had the steroid. I can't remember what it was. So that was out. Your other option is to get down below 9,000 feet. That, that's, that's an option. And your third option is to take Cialis if somebody has it. And lo and behold, somebody had it in camp. One of the other hunters had it. And so I started taking Cialis and I hung out at camp and hit the sauna and took a day and a half. But I, I got on Cialis and that's what brought me out of it. Right, you out of the brought you out of the 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 death plunge. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> so you go around. I don't know, man. There's so many. There's so <laughs> many jokes about that in hunting camp. Like you know, um, it, it, we've all heard them, and are probably not appropriate for the airwaves. But you score on hunting camp, start asking for Cialis, and some people might start giving <laughs> like. What are you? What do you have in mind? <laughs> exactly. What are you exactly. To get at? I didn't know it was this kind of hunting trip. And full disclosure, like you're not going to get a hard on in the mountains. Like when you're on it, like it just doesn't work like that. Especially like in Tajikistan, I feel like I'm dying. It was never a thing. So it doesn't affect you. That's not quite as hard of a hit as Viagra. (laughs) Exactly. That's fine. So yeah, that is a pretty cool tip. Is it relatively hard to get, convince a doctor to get you a prescription for it? No, no, I'm on, you know, the relationship with my doctor. I mean, he, he knows what I do for work and, and uh, yeah, go go Google it, and you can find tons of literature on it. So I think any doctor that has half a brain, if you were like, "Hey, I'm I'm headed to the mountains, and yeah, you know, I want some Cialis for altitude performance," and yeah, he, he, you're gonna get it prescribed. It's and it's cheap. It's like nothing. Yeah, my issue is I don't even have a doctor, so. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be a great first conversation like hi nice to meet you excited to be you know on your service blah 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 i need a family doctor <laughs> oh by the way can you write me a prescription for cialis <laughs> don't mind that i'm a healthy 28 year old but <laughs> uh, there you go it's yeah. an icebreaker right there yeah, that is an icebreaker um so the marco Ooh. polo sheep i was i thought about this right away when we got onto the 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 hunt but that's the one that if I if I recall correctly, it's like a long haired or longer haired bighorn. But the the is that the one that does almost like this the two x curl, like it goes around almost twice. Yeah, yeah, you get like a curl and a half. 
um, oh, is pretty God. common. But yeah, you get more than full curl. Um, the hunts on YouTube, you can look it up. It's like hunting world record class Marco Polo. Um, a couple Rams taken on there, and one of them that is number. It's either number fourteen or twenty nine in the world. I can't remember, but uh, the Ram is sixty three inches, so like a sixty three inch horn. Wow! And guys was fifty six inch horn. And for like reference, like a really long doll sheep is like forty three inches. And, and dolls are the dolls have the most curl of the North American sheep. Um, yeah, I would say so. There's some big bighorns out there. Like a 41 inch bighorn is a big one, but yeah, they're I mean, heavier like, though, right? Like a doll sheep is a little bit lighter horn than a bighorn, yes, like thin a, horn, like a 35 inch bighorn might weigh more than a, like a 45 inch doll. For sure. Yeah. yeah. It's like a bighorn compared to a thin horn. Like a thin horn ram is like a doll and a stone sheep. Uh, and so they don't, yeah, they don't get the mass. We're talking like 13, 14 inch bases, but you get some length and that's like, you know, the peeling uh, look of the doll sheep is that curl and a quarter, curl and a half. And then, yeah, the big horn, they tend to broom their tips off more and you get up to 18 inch bases Yeah, is, is like a giant. That's wild. And so, and then here's the other thing though, is like a Marco Polo, they're like even the next size bigger than a bighorn like the size of a spike elk like 450 pounds like they're big oh, body size they're body size oh yeah oh my gosh that's and a then lot you of, off. hopefully they taste better than a bighorn because that's a lot of meat oh yeah 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 no it's it is a lot of meat for sure and they they don't taste great they're they're pretty tough we're shooting old rams yeah rams that are you know 10 11 years old and it's tough living out there there's a ton of sheep though it, it's just like a a weird place because they they do not hunt those sheep over there even close to what they need to be hunted so there's sheep dying of old age all the time over there oh my gosh and do they so if they're a bigger bodied animal do they have like the mass that's represent like kind of relative to a bighorn since their whole body's just bigger yeah i i would say that the mass is comparable to a bighorn yeah oh my 17 gosh. inches yeah that's huge. I know I have a buddy, an acquaintance. I don't know if we're buddies. You could ask him. He's going to come on the podcast. But uh, he's done his grand slam with a bow, his sheep slam, North American sheep slam with a bow. And um, he had all four of his skulls lined up, and it looks so cool. But I've heard a lot of people, they're starting to do more and more replica horns for their shoulder so they can keep their euro because once you once you mount your once you mount your shoulder mount to your full body like you're never picking it up again and they yeah. miss like that weight that feeling of like magnitude when you pick up a skull and so they want they do the replica of the horn for the mount and then they can like you know when someone comes over they're like here pick this up like feel this this is crazy yeah 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 no they're, they're definitely a a different animal prehistoric and that horn is so dense and that those horn cores it's so dense have you picked him up i mean it, i have not crazy. seen his in person i'd love oh, to okay. pick one up um i don't think uh maybe at like a show i've yeah. picked up yeah. like a sheath or something and even then you can tell like this is hollow and it still waves more than an elk shed <laughs> yeah super heavy super dense yeah, yeah. So, no, I don't think I have yet. Um, but I was going to ask, for the people that hunt sheep a lot, so if you're like me, I'm a guy that if I shoot it, I want to eat it. I, do, I, like, I don't like shooting things that aren't edible. Um, unless it's like a predator, like a like a obnoxiously high-populated predator, like a coyote that's causing damage or an invasive that's causing damage, um, like carp, like I'll bowfish carp, but I'm not eating those. 
Yeah. But yeah. for like the sheep, like I don't, I would, I would want to eat it. And I'm sure most sheep hunters do, but like, can you oh, yeah. make, is there's anything you can do with it where you're like, yeah, this is good. Like it's not Angus or, or Hereford or beef or, you know, satellite bull elk, but it's good. Like I can eat this. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, sheep is good. I've, I've had rams. I, when I was a kid, I shot a bighorn ewe. Uh, they're excellent eating. Very really? excellent eating. Yeah, like maybe some of the old rams, they they can be tough, of course, but anything old, an old bull elk, an old mule deer buck, they can all be tough. Uh, but you can let it hang for a few weeks as long as you're, you know, you have climate control. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would also, I have found that helps is uh, doing the twice freeze. So freeze it, let it thaw, and then I'll like cut my steaks and then freeze it again. Okay. And then, then before you cook it, make sure you let it thaw and let it relax uh, for quite some time. You never like want to cook a half frozen steak or anything like that. So if you know you have a tough animal, let it relax for uh, two, three hours at room temperature before you cook it. But you can, you really can take a tough bull elk or a tough bighorn sheep twice, freeze it and then let it relax. And it's pretty good table fare for sure. Yeah, the steaks is the hard one. I mean, I was like, I've heard yeah. this, that sheep and goats don't, and I know they're two different animals, but sheep and goats don't taste good. And so, like, I'm like, well, I mean, can you make, like, a pressure-cooked stew or, like, taco? Like, taco meat's got to work, right? Like you. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 Is that true that's for why mountain you... goats, too, then? Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. No, another good example is Audad. When I went to Texas and I shot some Audad and brought it back, and that stuff was tough. That was the toughest meat I've ever had. But... You can, you can still eat it. You pressure cook it or like I'll do like pulled pork sandwiches. So I'll put it in a crock pot and then just slow cook it for a long time and mix it with barbecue sauce yeah. and it, you know, it falls apart. So it's not like you can waste, you know, you're not wasting anything. Yeah. So yeah, you, you can make, you know, roadkill taste good if you pressure cook it. Yeah. So that's all it comes down to like javelina too. That's another one. Most people don't like javelina or most people that do like it. They make like sausage or chorizo or something like that. And so, yeah, you're definitely not wasting anything and make it. You know, yeah. You just got to know what to do with it, I guess. Because <laughs> I've heard the same for brown bears or grizzlies um, mm-hmm. in Canada, in Alaska, that a lot of times they don't eat those. And and, um, mm-hmm. and you're like, why not? And it's, I think that one, it was more of a taste than a toughness. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's like, yep. man, to shoot an animal of that magnitude and not eat it just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I, I don't know. I know the guys there were the, the brown bears that eat salmon and eat a lot of meat, like the the meat's greasy and blah, 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 and like fishy and just it's not good table fare. Um, but yeah, it's it's a cultural thing up there, I feel like. Uh most guys don't eat grizzly bears or brown bears because of that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't think they have a, a higher rate of trichinosis, say, than like black bears or anything like that. And it's not like it's an unsafe meat to eat, but I don't think it's very good for sure. Yeah. I mean, I would, at that point, it's like, well, I'm just going to do taco meat. I'm going to grind it up. I'm going to cook it to plenty high temps. It's going to have maybe double the portions of taco seasoning than, than my elk, but I'm going to eat, like, I want to eat it. Like if I'm going to do it, I don't like, that's one animal where I just, I mean, I know they got to be managed, right? Because anything uncontrolled doesn't usually go well, Um, but but man, to just shoot it and and because that's where it seems to me like you definitely cross the line between like conservationist outdoorsman and trophy hunter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I I would agree. I would agree. And there's, it's just weird because there's half the people 
like eating bear and other half of people are like, no, I don't eat predators. That's disgusting. I had some coyote. A uh, coworker shot a coyote, turned it into some breakfast sausage, brought it in, and <coughs> sorry. Um, and I, that was one where you know, like predators, you know, like you got to there's special care to cook a predator, right? From the yeah. trichinosis and all kinds of different things, and to have a coworker bring some up to you at your desk at work and be like, "Hey, want to try this?" And you're like instantly going through all the scenarios. Like, does this? Do I trust this person enough to cook a predator for me without seeing <laughs> any part of the prep or the cook, and know that it, it was done well? And I'm like, eh, all right, let's go for it. So I ate it. I don't know. Maybe I got trichinosis. I didn't get sick. So um, I know people like obviously the famous cases. Giannis and Steve got trichinosis from eating undercooked bear, and they're alive. But I think they got sick. Like they knew something happened. For sure. Um, and so if anyone ever eats them, they got to cook it to a full temperature. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, you know, there's an anti-worm, you know, pill that you can take that kills it in you from what I understand anyway. So you can at least get rid of it if you have trichinosis. I thought I heard that they like carry it now. Like that, like something mm. is permanent. But, I mean, I'm sure they're healthy and fine and Maybe some of the after effects. If you if you let it go too long, I could see how it could damage you. I have to look that up. I mean, I I haven't it's good to know. I haven't got trichinosis, but yeah, you got to cook yeah cook your stuff thoroughly. I'm I'm w- kind of weird because I I'm like indifferent on bears. Like if it's a nice spring bear, it's usually good eating. If it's like a or, or even fall bears, it depends on how fat they are, or what they're eating. But usually it's good eating. Yeah. But like dogs, like I'm just I. I will not eat a dog, whether it's a wolf or a coyote, just not my thing. Won't do it. And cats either, but I have eaten mountain lion. It's, it's not bad. Yeah. Uh, I've heard I it's like one. a pork, like a light colored yeah. chicken or pork meat. Yeah. It's yeah. quality meat, but I know guys that like, nope, I won't eat it. I don't, I don't eat predators. And so it's like, okay. And you know, it, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird place to be because there is a fine line there of, you know, being, you know, wasteful and, you know, disrespecting the source, the yeah. food source, um, to a degree. And so, um, yeah, I, I eat my cats. I've, I've only killed one cat, but I eat it and I bring it out and, and I do give some away that that's the other thing. Like it's not, I'm not necessarily going to eat all my bears or all my cats, but I will give that meat away if buddies like to try it or whatever. I'll give it away. But it doesn't sit right with me, like leaving in the field either. So I'm kind of, you know, I don't eat dogs, no coyotes, no wolves, nothing like that. And I don't eat prairie dogs. I'll eat squirrels, but I don't eat prairie dogs. Prairie dogs <laughs> would be a stretch. Yeah. Even yeah. to me, even the squirrels, it's like, you're really doing a lot of work for a little payoff. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get a limit of squirrels and that's enough for an hors d'oeuvre. But yeah, the I don't think I'm going to make a habit out of i've never shot a coyote myself which is probably i have to turn in my man card for that but um (laughs) never shot a coyote it's i don't know it looks fun i would like to do it someday i've never been big on it i don't think i'm going to make a practice out of eating coyotes i would be surprised if i ever shoot a wolf just because where i live you can't shoot them um so i'd have to travel quite a bit for it and that's not high on my on my dream list um but the bears i i really want to do like a spring high elevation black bear hunt, you know, the ones that are eating more blueberries than fawns type of, I, I've heard delicious, those are delicious bears. I would, I would love to eat that. I don't know what I would do. I mean, little concerned about making like a cold smoke sausage or, or undercooked yeah. steaks, but probably more crock pot meals and tacos and, and yeah, I think that would be really fun. Yep. 
for sure. I when I with my bears, I don't. It's all crockpot meals. I don't eat steaks, and that ah, it's not worth the risk. Well, you can't like yeah, like with a predator, you. If anyone's tried to eat a steak that's cooked to one sixty or one fifty six, good luck. And yeah. so, and you can't do it really do it under that. So, yeah, that's what I would probably do there. Um, yeah, why risk it? It's yeah. not worth it. I just Although don't. I will. No, I was gonna say I will say like in Montana they used to uh, test your bear for trichinosis, so you could like send in a tissue sample Ooh. and they'd test it. That would be and nice. So you can. Know so that's pretty cool. Do. Like if you could do like snack sticks or summer sausage with it, because none of that stuff. You usually bring it up to a temp, like one fifty two or one fifty six, depending on what you're. But you're kind of riding a fine line, a gray area, because it's time and temperature to kill most things, and every everything is different that you could potentially get from it. Um, but yep. what I've read, pretty much one sixty, everything dies. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. yeah, you got it. But then if you cook like summer sausage to 160 or smoke it to 160, usually that's not good summer sausage. Like that's right. not how you make that. And so it would be nice to know, like, if I have an issue. Same with CWD. Like, I think a lot of people yeah. like knowing. Some people would maybe eat it anyway, but it'd be nice to know. Like, maybe they wouldn't give that away or maybe they wouldn't, like, encourage their kids to eat that as much. Yep, exactly. It, that's the one thing I, I will not feed bear or anything sketchy to my kids if is you know if it's not like well done yeah like, yeah like stew why, why? pull apart it's been sitting at 208 degrees for two hours exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly it's everything that it. you can catch in here is dead um exactly yeah yeah that's a good part of it because that's a big part of what i do you know it's for the food the food aspect of it i mean i haven't bought red meat unless it's like something special um yep. that you just don't have in the freezer for years now i mean I've, I'm, I need to actually do better about getting rid of everything from last fall before this fall starts. But then you run that risk of, I, you know, I go heavy on the meat, empty the freezer, and then I don't have a very successful fall, and now I'm out of meat. You know, that's that's kind of that fine line. Yep, exactly. So exactly. Awesome. Well, I asked you what your favorite adventure was so far, and you you really hit it out of the park on that. But if I had to ask you what your like, if we could only limit you to one hunt a year, what hunt would you go on? Like, what's Ooh. your well, your all time? Like, what's the you're not going to Marco Polo hunt every year. So, what's like your every year the thing you look forward to most each fall? Yeah, bow hunting elk yeah. during prime time. Yeah, That's what's number one? What's prime time for you? Everyone's got like their different prime time. Yeah, it depends on the state, the region, the elevation. Um, and usually it's, you know, areas that I've been in before I'm familiar with elk habits. Yeah. Uh, I like early season. I like to catch those bulls right before they're cowed up and right out, right after they're coming out of like their summer range. So they just rub their, their velvet, uh, you know, well, they rub their velvet in the middle of August, but they're, they're like in that transitional stage before cows, uh, they're aggressive, they're territorial and they're looking for cows. And so I do love that early season, uh, time frame to, to find a big bull by himself. So you're probably to... talking like first, second week of September. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime before September 12th. Yeah. So really first week. Um, it's funny cause I ask everyone and everyone's got their preferences, but you know, we're, we're big third week elk hunters, especially this year we're going as far South as we've ever been. We're on the Southern Colorado. Um, and so we, we picked the third week for multiple reasons. None of us like, we're all from Minnesota. So none of us like the heat. 
we don't want to be caught out in a hundred degree deserts. Um, we had a local that we went shed hunting with. He kind of said, well, yeah, that third week's my favorite. And I'm like, well, if you hunt this unit and that's your favorite week, we'll go that week. But what I wanted to get at is sometimes everyone sees YouTube and they see the bugle fest with bulls running everywhere. And, you know, the shooter shoots a bull, the caller turns around and shoots a different bull. And then there's two more bulls coming through and it's just wild. Right. And they think, oh, I want to elk hunt that where there's just bugles everywhere, just peak of bugling activity. Because it is when, you, when you're when archery hunting, like you live and die by those bugles a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But that's, to me, I feel like that's sometimes not your most successful period because there's herd, like that's usually like third week of September, like September 20th to the 25th is when you have that ultimate high bugling. But that's when the, the herds are established. There's lots of competition of of elk just elk alone also lots of human competition in the woods and so it's like yeah you might hear the most bugles then but that might not be your most successful week to go exactly exactly it's yeah for for me it's all that is calculated in and you know all my big bulls and hunts i've been on that aren't my hunts but hunting with uh, my brother or whatever um have all been early season but i would say um you know on, on hunts that i expect trophy quality to be high I go early season on hunts that, you know, like general tags that, uh, you know, I want to hear a lot of elk and I'm not as picky on the quality of bull. I like third week. And that also depends on if it's a desert hunt or if it's a hunt at 10,000 feet, there's a lot of other factors. Yeah. But just to fill your tag, I think the third week is, is fantastic. Uh, yeah. More pressure third week. Cause everybody's going third week. Um, but like desert hunting, if I'm a low country hunt, I like October, like Montana, their bow season goes into October. And so I enjoy hunting late season. And, and so, yeah, you, you kind of build this uh, schedule in your mind after you hunt all these Western states and these regions and the, the, the locales, whether it's a high elevation or a low elevation, and then the style of hunt. And, and maybe also it's a thick area. If it's mm-hmm. really thick, then I got to rely on bugling. I'm probably going to go the third week. If I have some more open country and I can glass, then yeah, second week, maybe fourth week, maybe first week. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's always, it's all situational for sure. And and very calculated because it does make a big difference. Well, I think it's funny how you said, like, if I'm just looking general unit, got a tag, just want to bring home some meat, um, third week, because that's kind of where we're at. I mean, we are the first to admit we're the Raghorn Brigade. Uh, any legal bull with us, because we do, we get one week a year. A majority yep. of our group has not shot an elk themselves. They've all, but we've shot elk almost every year, but um, not everyone has shot theirs yet. I haven't shot one with a bow. I've shot two with a rifle. And so that's the week we go, and we usually live and die by the bugles. Um, but I wanted to ask you, so like you mentioned certain terrain types and states, you, you like October or like fourth week. Are you then trying to like pull a bull in like that last cow that's still coming into estrus, or are you mostly doing like spot and stock, putting them to bed, sneaking in close? Uh, what's what's kind of your favorite way to archery hunt elk? Are you the Corey Jacobson? I'm gonna run and bugle until one charges me, or are you more of a stealthy assassin like like uh, Brian Ryan Lampers? Yeah, I would say that you have to be adaptable. Okay. You can't be a, a one-trick pony. Um, you know, those guys, they, they have their methods, and, and that's fine. I mean, if, if you live and die by the bugle, you can go home empty. 
uh, if you, you get into a bowl, that's not callable because I've, I've been there and you can't get them called in. And so, yeah, you gotta be able to transition and go to spot and stock. And so, uh, I think that's the, the biggest thing is knowing when to apply those tactics on any given hunt that you're on. Yeah. Uh, and, and that right there, if you can really figure that out, you will go home every year with a punch tag. Yeah. If, if you can put everything else together and like make the shot and everything, but um, you know, I'm not, I've been doing it a long time. And so I've, I've had a lot of practice with it. Um, and just like anything, the more you do, the better you get. And like you guys are saying, you know, if you're on the Raghorn express, that's what we call it out here. Um, that's great. If, if I were you, if you haven't shot an elk with your bow yet, I would shoot a cow. That, oh, that's how I grew I'm up. I'm hundred percent. Like I will <laughs> shoot a cow. I had one last year at 60, but they were spooky I didn't have a range, like a good range I trusted, and she was locked onto me, and it was, we were hunting a place in Montana where it was just tough to archery hunt because it was so open. I mean, there was, if black timber is the standard, this was white timber. I mean, (laughs) yeah, this had full sunlight, and so there's not a twig in between us, and I'm just like, I don't feel comfortable with this shot. It's already at my max comfortable range on an elk, and it's, you know, she's on to me the whole herd's on to me there's you know it's we were busted before the encounter took place kind of we got we got dive bombed really is what happened oh, and so yeah. i didn't take the shot good thing because we had a flat tire on the ranger and that turned into a whole mess and then it was thunderstorming that night we got rained out on the mountain and yeah it was it was a disaster so to th- imagine doing all that and having to take care of a cow on the mountain and find a cow on the mountain i was like eh, kind of probably better i didn't shoot that cow yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. you said it right there. That's what makes it so tough is because there's so many factors that have to be right yeah. for it to all work out and all happen. Well, and the funny thing I was thinking back, I've gone on seven, I believe seven or eight archery hunts now. And I've had an elk within 40 yards on every single hunt. I believe, I don't think there's ever been one where I haven't been in the game. Um, I've launched an arrow at an elk and I realized uh, hindsight it's always a good idea to check that there's no sticks in front of your arrow not just in front of your sight because there was a stick at like two inches from my broadhead and I couldn't see it in my sight housing because I was looking through the other side and as soon as I touched off the tree next to me exploded my lighted knock went about 40 feet over his back and off the side of the mountain and my brother stepped out and got him so we got the elk but Oh, cool. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's pretty easy. It, well, I won't say it's easy. Nothing about elk hunting is easy, but it's pretty high odds that if you do your work, you prep, you practice, it seems like you can get those elk within bow range, but that's when the real game starts. Yeah, exactly. There's so many other little things that you have to be you know, dialed on and not get tunnel vision and be able to think and and move and adapt you know, in the zone, in the moment. Like, just learning how to move when an animal is close is difficult Yeah, because they pick up movement and you're, you're trying to time it with their eyes, you know, whether they're looking this way or that way, or, you know, some trees that are covering their eyes. Like it's very hard to be calm and then get your timing dialed on making your movements and knowing what you can get away with for sure. And that, that can take a lifetime to dial really. Well, and it's, and it's, it's tough when you, when you don't live out there. So like, like you said, you can't be a one trick pony. Well, you can be, Corey Jacobson can be a one trick pony when he has the entire month to get the job done. Yeah. And, you know, but we got nine days. A lot of times we needed, you know, 
take a couple days of travel, something happens, you're taking a half day off to go fix a flat tire, or you shoot one early and it's so hot, someone's got to bring it down to town to get it to a locker. And, um, and so we only get like one week a year. And it's, it's hard to, it's like, it's iterative. You just need to go through the game and the cycle over, it's like batting practice. Like you just got to hit a lot of baseballs to get good. And and when you only have five days a week or nine days a week or a year to, to hit baseballs, it's hard to turn into, you know, Barry Bonds. Yep. Yep. Exactly. But there's things that you can do too. Yeah. Hunt squirrels with your bow, hunt groundhogs, hunt everything. coyotes, hunt everything yeah. Yeah. all the time for sure. For sure. There's always prep that you can do. Tar- shooting targets is good. It only helps you so much. It doesn't really prepare you for like hunting season, obviously, but yeah, um, it, it definitely allows you to, to get comfortable shooting at, you know, something other than a bullseye, which is a thing in itself. And it's good practice to do is to shoot at a 3d target and, you know, not have that white dot to aim at. You know what I mean? And because it's a different style of yeah. skill for sure. I have found I'm terrible at shooting at bedded animals. Yeah. With yeah. my bow. And it's Don't like I understand it. it. Yeah. Like I'm a smart dude. I understand how the body is oriented when it's laying down and I need to aim different and I try. And it's like, gosh darn it, I ended up in the same spot I did last time. Standing 3D, no problem at all. Everyone, you know, but the, for some reason, like I always my arrow always comes in too low on those yeah. on those bedded animals but yeah the the person i uh spoke about earlier that's got the sheep slam he said you know one thing that i like to do is every time i shoot my bow my first cold arrow is 100 yards that's i don't warm up at 20 and then 40 and then get to 100 i shoot the first one cold at 100 and that really changes like your thought process like you're like i you know a lot of things could go wrong i'm cold then that, that that's what's going to happen when you shoot your animal you're going to be hiking his example, he put in 47 days of hunting before he got his first shot opportunity at a stone. Yeah, yeah. So I believe it. I mean, that's four years of hunting this one game, four trips, and, you know, so it's obviously he was cold. Like, he wasn't practicing. He wasn't carrying around a Reinhardt 18-1 and one up on a backpack hunt. Exactly. And not a lot exactly. of things to shoot on up there to practice, you know. Let me see if I hit that rock and waste a $40 arrow. Yeah, so, yeah. No, that's, that's great to do. And I do that too. When season gets close, one arrow yeah. going cold and shoot one arrow, whether it's 40 or 80 or whatever, yeah. just one arrow and, and then put the bow down and go do something else for a while. Yeah. That's, I, I wonder if working from like the work from home culture is going to make bow hunters a better archer because you can just like, you know, I'm bored. I got five minutes before my next meeting, my target's set up, my bow sitting next to the patio door. I'm going to shoot one arrow. And then come back and work. And then I'm going to shoot you one know, arrow and come back to work. And I do that perfect. all the time. I need a break at 1130 in the morning. I go out and shoot 12 arrows and then come back in and take my next call. Yep. Yep. Exactly. That's the way to do it. Yeah. So awesome. Well, well, we, we covered a lot. We covered um, Cialis and altitude sickness. We covered <laughs> cooking uh, predators. Uh, what I was going to ask one more question. And then we got a couple of things that you were working on that you're really excited to share with the audience. But but before we get there, what what's kind of the next maybe dream hunt or the big the big adventure that you're thinking in the future? Like, what's next on your list as an outdoorsman that you'd really like to to punch or or check off? Yeah, yeah. There's of course the hunts I want to do again. New Zealand, I've been there once, and Australia hunting fallow and red deer. Um, that's that's a hunt. The next hunt that I want to do that I've already done. Uh, as far as like a new hunt. 
Uh, I probably next on the list is a uh, Yukon moose with my bow. Yeah. Um, just big animals. Um, ideally, I don't know if you've seen Kamchatka moose, the Russian moose over there. They're just prehistoric gargantuan. Obviously, that probably won't happen anytime soon going to Russia. <laughs> but yeah. but that's probably my ultimate adventure on the list is Kamchatka moose uh, with a bow. Are they? I've never heard of that one, which is surprising. Are they bigger than a Yukon even? Um, I would say body size is fairly comparable to a big Yukon moose, but Kamchatka moose, I would say they're shaped a little different. They get a little bit bigger. Uh, their, their front area, their palms up front, um, brow tines, I guess you'd call them. It's all like a lot of those moose. It's all very palmated everywhere. And mm. you know, we're talking 70 plus inches, um, just huge, huge prehistoric. I, I don't know if technically... Uh, they're any bigger and genetically, I mean, they're just across the ocean from each other. So I'm sure genetically they're identical. Um, but yeah, it for may whatever be more reason. like just something in the environment that causes yeah. them. It, it, yeah, it could yeah. be, it could be, and it could be an age thing. Cause yeah. I mean, Yukon moose do get that big, but it's not like there's everybody and their brother running around Alaska hunting Kamchatka moose or running around in Russia hunting Kamchatka moose. Like people run around everywhere hunting Yukon moose in Alaska. Yeah. There's just. I mean, there's some hunting in Kamchatka, but it's not anything like, you know, uh, Alaska. Yeah. Well, when you get so. that figured out and everybody decides to be friends again in that part of the world, uh, and you need, if you need like a camp cook, camp, uh, <laughs> camp manager would probably be the politically correct way to say the same thing we're thinking of. Uh, I'll volunteer, you know, I'll do it. <laughs> for, I'll do it for half the price you were willing to pay anyone else. There we go. Make sure you just have your will figured out before we go over there and bring you be ready to drink some vodka maybe. I don't know. It gets pretty wily over there. Hey, you know what? <laughs> if we need someone to take the grenade and, and become friends with the locals and maybe uh, take a little liver damage on as, as part of the trade, <laughs> I, I'm qualified for that too. Okay, you're the man. You're you're the the man for the job on that. Yeah, yeah, like the Burt Kreischer machine. I'll be the I'll be the machine story for that uh, that hunt. So, <laughs> making friends with all the locals and, um, but yeah, so that's the dream hunt. That it's a pretty common one I've found since we've been doing this podcast. A lot of people are really looking at that moose, that Alaskan Yukon. Um, that's it's on my list. I don't know if it's next, but it's definitely on my list. So. Um, I'm right there with you, but, but with that, uh, you had a couple of things we talked about before we got started that you're really excited about a couple of projects you're working on, on your side of things. Why don't you share some of those and, and where our listeners can go and uh, check those out for themselves? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm, I do a lot of things here at Eastman's from, uh, writing for the hunting journal and the bow hunting journal to YouTube videos. Um, myself and Brian Barney, uh, built the Eastman's online mule deer course, which is an A to Z how to on hunting mule deer uh, whether you're new or you're a seasoned veteran uh, i guarantee you there's there's something to be learned uh, we're running a special right now too uh, it's 10 percent off and you get a free knife and a free set of game bags and your name goes in the hunt uh, or your name goes into the pot to to win a free hunt a mule deer hunt with with guy so um, that's pretty cool stuff and then um, yeah if you haven't checked out uh, beyond the grid that's kind of uh, our online video series that I'm the producer of. Uh, it's on our Eastman's Hunting Journal's YouTube channel. Um, check it out and check out my latest hunt that I just released. 
a, a super giant bull that I killed last year in grizzly bear country, grizzly bears surrounding my camp, stole my elk, uh, just the ultimate adventure. Uh, that YouTube video is called uh, uh, Grizzly Bear Stole My Giant Bull. But uh, if you YouTube search that, uh, it'll come up. And it, I can tell you, after you watch this hunt, you're going to be moved. And I don't know in which way you're going to be moved, scared of grizzly bears or just hopefully uh, just the epicness of of what the hunt really was and how big of a bull it really was. But uh, yeah, it's beyond the grid. I'm super passionate about uh, bringing hunts to video that the everyday guy can do DIY style, just out there working hard. That's what I'm passionate about. That's how I was raised. And that's what I, I am blessed to, to continue to do. And now I just film it. So, um, truly special stuff. Uh, it's, I haven't worked in 10 years. Uh, it's just been a great job and, and I love what I do and I love the pressure and, and all the, the stuff that comes along with it. But, uh, yeah, you can find that on our YouTube channel and all the updates on social media, of course, Beyond the Grid TV, Eastman's Hunting Journals on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, yeah, it's lots of content out there and we do lots of Western hunting stuff. So it's free for the taking. Awesome. And you you have a, a podcast platform along with the Beyond the Grid TV, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a, a new one that myself and Brian Barney started uh, the Eastman's bow hunting journal podcast, life of a bow hunter. Uh, it's just me and him talking about in depth on skill sets and gear and how to's and just, uh, good information that we, we reveal a lot of things in this podcast on our tactics and tips and where we hunt. Uh, and so, uh, it, yeah, we just want to take our content to the next level. And, uh, so yeah, you can find that anywhere that uh, podcasts are available. Awesome. Well, great. Go uh, finish this episode out and then go listen to the Beyond the Grid podcast and check out some of the great hunts. I was, You won't be disappointed because I've already done some scouting on this whole adventure and, and the, the bulls that, that Dan's talking about are truly, you know, world-class bulls. I mean, some of the biggest bulls I don't think I've ever seen. Well, I take that back. I did have the opportunity to to scout a, a near 400, but I didn't shoot it, so I, it doesn't wow. count. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, they're huge, massive bulls, bigger bulls than most people will generally find on their, their Colorado over-the-counter tag. So. Yep, yep, and and these are hunts that anybody can yeah. do, general hunts, easy to draw, uh, but just different areas. And, of, of course, having some knowledge helps and uh, the remoteness, right? I mean, that's yeah. a huge thing. If you can find areas that don't get pounded by other hunters, uh, you're going to find that next age class of animal. So. Yeah. Yeah. Go places. You do things that are different, right? I mean, that's kind of the definition of insanity. If you do everything that, I mean, it's a little different, but if you do everything that everyone else is going to do, you're going to end up with the same results everyone else has. Exactly. Is maybe exactly. that's good. Maybe that's what you want. Maybe you just want to, to go and punch a tag and, and you're going to go to the high population, high pressure areas and you're going to do just that. But yeah, if you like us and you love big elk, got to do a couple things differently to increase your chances. And, and it sounds yeah. like that's what you guys really showcased is how you can do that without, you know, selling your first and second born children. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, absolutely. So awesome. Well, thank you for being here today, Dan. And thank you for listening folks.